Hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Share stories. Sometimes it's to make you laugh a little bit. That's absurd, or it's a stupid thing I didn't like. But why on earth would somebody ever share a tragic story? Well, I think the word you're looking for is catharsis. That the best stories deal not with the comedy of life. Well, they'll incorporate it but with the tragedies in life. And it's when the tragic stuff means something that you have that feeling that we give the word catharsis to. And that's how I felt last night. I'm feeling the after effects, the afterglow still today from seeing, well, I'm going to focus on what Marvel did. Joining me as usual on Monday, and welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hours, Troy. Hey, man. I woke up this morning exhausted yeah just exhausted and you know let's start off with this a big throat clearing we're not going to spoil the avengers endgame movie there will be no spoiling tonight but then there might be people out there going oh get a life you young bucks or whatever i mean and people can like what they want but the spoiling isn't really for the people making all the money it's not about the actors or the Russo brothers. It's about people that enjoy this storytelling and like to see it unfurled. Now, if you're a big fan, I don't know why you haven't seen it yet, but life gets in the way. Right. All that said, what a remarkable job they did. When by they, I mean the Marvel team, Kevin Feige, the producer at large, all the directors that have directed all the movies throughout the years who were executive producers on this final film, and in particular the Russo brothers, who helped make what was an incredibly complicated story with all these characters from over 11 years, in particular you know, anchored by Robert Downey Jr. and his portrayal of Iron Man. And here's my throat clearing point. Is you can try to put superhero movies in a box of this is just stupid escapism. There's no depth. And in some ways, you might watch some superhero movies or comic book movies, and you'd be right. However, I think it's been shown time and time again now that you can't put every superhero comic book movie in that box. They should be considered up there with some of the best movies ever made. Some of them. Not all of them. Right. For instance, Thor 2, The Dark World. Not a good movie. 
Not a good movie. Um, I mean, the first Hulk movie. Not really. I didn't like Suicide Squad. Same. Batman vs. Superman. Not good. I liked it. You did? I liked it. <laughs> Why did you say her name? I guess, I mean, it's as far-fetched as it is for Superman to espouse Rand. Uh, it, it, oh, Ayn Rand? It, yeah. It, it brought some enjoyment to me because... Why haven't superheroes, especially ones like Superman, asked those types of questions before? Well, and fair enough. But, again, that's that's literally the exact opposite of Superman. Right. Uh, Except for an injustice. Well, and I wish... Let's get off that, though. Right. The point is, is that there are, like any other genre of movies, a lot of crap. It's like most things in life. There's a few really excellent, well-done products. Mm-hmm. And then there are a lot of copycats and imitators or people trying to pave new ground or new roads. And they're not as, you know, you can grow out of this. And what Marvel pulled off this weekend, it is, I think, a number one a success of storytelling. When a story in a movie makes you laugh all throughout the film in a good way but also makes you cheer and stand up. Clap. Clap. Freak out a little bit. Feel a, a tense, kind of impending sense of doom. That Anger. Anger. And then also, one scene in particular, which is just a single camera shot. There's no special effects. There's no fancy writing. It is just a human moment. There wasn't a dry eye. There wasn't a dry eye in the theater. It made me want to go get cheeseburgers after the show. Yeah. I mean, that if a movie or story can do that, I mean, what more do you want out of storytelling? So I think it's an incredible feat of storytelling drawn out over a decade that could have easily have failed and fallen right on its face and has now achieved, put a nice bow around everything. It even takes movies that aren't that good like Thor 2, and they're now more an episode leading to this amazing epic conclusion. And yes, there's the the comic book stuff in the movie. There's stuff that the fans will, who are really big comic book fans will appreciate. But if you're not even a huge comic book person, I'm not. There's something you can hold on to. In particular, catharsis. There's a beating heart to these movies that allows you to connect with the characters and help you relate. I mean, how are you going to relate to Thor, uh, literally a god? character. Well, it's because Thor goes through the same emotions we all do. How do you relate to these people? It's really the battles we fight every day sprawled out on a grand scale, so it's more dramatic. And I, I just have to tip my hat and say bravo to Marvel. So storytelling success. Financial economic success. $1.2 billion worldwide in a weekend. It, it shattered the opening record for domestic opening day by yeah. like 200 million. Yeah. That's that's Thursday night by the way, opening day. And I think it's also a technological success. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't I mean, I'm sure if we look back in 20 years time, there will be some things that we see with some of the computer effects oh, sure. that that sort of takes us out of the immersion of it, but in the theater 
We saw it in the Big D. Mm-hmm. Worst name for a theater ever, by the way. Yeah, but this movie deserves the Big D. This movie does deserve the Big D. It was really immersive. The only thing that broke my immersion were was loud eaters. We had some loud eaters. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's a wailing child. Like, who brings a baby to a movie? There was an infant, yeah. But that was me on the inside, Joey. Oh, right, yeah. I felt that, too. Yeah, but you're a grown man. You know how to keep that yeah. to yourself. There, well, <laughs> You know, there, for <coughs> some of the sadness that was... Some of the emotion that comes out in that movie. Mm-hmm. I only had like four or five tears. No, it wasn't like you're bawling and despondent. But, but my nose, bro, yeah. it was streaming <laughs> snot. My no, it was just snot was just coming down. Right, right, and uh, it reminded me. I think the best stories are the ones that remind you of your own life and help you process things in your own life without giving away the scene. You texted me earlier today. Uh, where essentially it reminded me of my mother. And, like, if you had the chance to talk to your mother who's passed again, what would you say? What would she say seeing you a few years later? And you were like, should I reach out to Joey? Like, what were you thinking in that moment? I Well, as it was going on, it was ripping me apart. And I was like, I, I don't know how Joey's going to... I don't know how he's making it through this, man. If, if I were... Because I was like, if I was in his shoes... I I would be sobbing. In a way though, it was like the it was catharsis. It was the healing moment. It made me Was know, it think, because of what she said? Yeah, in many ways. And just and this again, it's hard to without giving away the movie, the deft touch they have of really emotional moments. Mm-hmm. And then a a joke, but a joke that fits the character. It, the, like it's real life. The laughter in this movie was... It didn't come from a place of slapstick. No. Although it was... Slapstick was sprinkled in. But it... it, it I don't... I would consider the laughter to be mirthful. Right. <laughs> no, it's just... Well, I think what it is is you invest so much time in the creative process of building up these full, well-rounded characters. They can now riff off each other... And it doesn't sound like very contrived. It's like, oh, that's what Ant-Man would say. That's right. what Iron Man or Captain America would say. They're not just these caricatures. They're actually full-blown characters with all these motivations and drives and personalities. And so when they interplay, it just works beautifully well. And I, again, hat tip to Marvel. Uh, thank you to them. Because, you know, for a movie like that, that, you know, you think is just escapism, get away from the the real world. I mean, I'm sorry, but when I look at the real world, half of that's contrived. So much has happened over our lives since that first Iron Man movie. Right, we're 30 now, so we were in our teenage years still. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually... Because I'm not a big comic book guy, there was a while where I wasn't into the superhero movies. It's like, yeah, what is that? Like, I'm I'm more intelligent than this. You know, look down your nose, act pretentious, and then they grab you again. In particular, Captain America Winter Soldier is the movie that grabbed me. It's like, okay, a cool spy thriller Captain America movie. Okay, that works. That's still, that's my, that's the apex. Right. That's the uh, omphalos. And, you know, not to belabor the point too much, I also love that back to that $1.2 billion figure, 
It's not just that Disney's just raking in the money. My God. And they're going to continue to rake in the money. Like all those previews that we watched where it's, what, the Lion King's coming out? Live action Lion King. Live action Uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. Some others. What were some of the others? Well, the new Hobbs and Shaw, the Fast and Furious spinoff is going to be there. So that that movie looks like it just it was that is spectacle. I that that's an eighties cocaine fueled movie that is occurring in twenty nineteen. Like right. it, it's gonna be awful. But so, I'm it's gonna be good. Not only is Disney just raking in the money and they're coming out with their new streaming service, which will have all the Disney classics plus all the content they now own from Fox, from Marvel, from every I mean, it if you are in the stock buying business, I'm not a professional by any means i shouldn't give a recommendation because i haven't bought a stock in my life it's but too, it's too late though you, sh- you should have earlier yeah you should have bought it before disney did their whole I- ipo guess what i'm saying disney that streaming Plus. service is going to be killer because what i've learned you know i've actually learned it from the wwe network and wrestling content is king mm-hmm. content is king old crap from like the early 90s, like WCW, NWA wrestling era, is now fodder for all these different podcasts, for all these different shows, uh, and the network is making and reaping all that money from buying that content at bottom-of-the-barrel prices. You know, years ago, like, why are you buying that? Well, just to have it, just in case. In case we need that character, in case we need that scene. Um, and so I think content is king going forward. And it and it gets me back to the other thing that happened last night, the huge blowout battle in Game of Thrones. And again, I'm not going to give that away either. But it's just such a cool time when you're talking about creative storytelling has become so successful when it's done right. There's a lot of, again, cheap crap that's out there. But I think when we maybe look back and you people talk about history is judging you. It's usually used in the political realm. It's like, well, whatever. Um, but no, I think if we write history, like the last 50, 60 years, what Westerners, in particular Americans, started to do with the storytelling format with cinema, it's masterful. I don't think anything's ever been done like this. I mean, you can maybe go to some of the long-winded operas that were happening in the 1800s. But I, just this over-the-top storytelling that does have a beating heart, that does connect with everyday themes, uh, it's remarkable. And I've said this a lot, and again, not to belabor the point, when you look at that $1.2 billion figure, that's not just people in the United States. It's people from all over the world, in particular political adversaries and rivals like China. So I, it, it's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to create world peace and all the power rivalry and geopolitical games go on between China and the United States. But I think it does allow people to go, well, we're not all that different. There's something to these stories that connect with people no matter where they're from and who they are. A hundred million people, plus or minus a couple million, you know, taking into account the people that saw it multiple times over the weekend. That's like a hundred million people based off the figure, the right. monetary figure, have seen this movie. It's a hundred million people that had experienced what you and I experienced yesterday. Right, and how do you even begin to calculate that? I mean, we can do the dollar figure, but how do you, like, how? Do, what sort of cultural capital does that build up? Right. What? How long will these stories connect people? And I think they'll continue to do so for a while. And it's a good, I tend to think that 
nations that share culture probably don't fight wars against one another. Now, there's always the prospect of... Unless you're Russian. Yeah. Well, did you see the... This is comedic. What the Norwegians, the Norwegian Navy found today. Oh, yeah. Near... Beluga whale. Yeah, white beluga whale. A harness that was used to... That, by the way, the English translation of the article you read was probably incorrect. Probably. Uh, it, I'm they, always skeptical of anything they, from that part they, of the world. They found a beluga whale that was trying to prevent fishermen from putting their nets in the water by trying to detach the nets from the ship. Hmm. This whale was wearing a harness. On top of the harness was, the English article says weapon, or what could potentially be a weapon, but in Norwegian... The word weapon is not used. Hmm. The, or the Norwegian word for weapon is not used. It just means object or item. Anyway, inside this object, they first they thought it could be, it was like a camera with something attached to it. This, this object had a little box, and you opened it up, and in English, which is, uh, as far as I know, that's the sort of global maritime language. Okay. So everything's going to be written in English. It said property of St. Petersburg <laughs> or, or something similar to that. Like yeah. it said, it's from St. Petersburg. I but thought it, when you said comedic, you were being really on the nose and talking about Ukraine's new president who actually is, is a comedian. And played the president before. No, I, I just found it funny because I saw the video of this whale and it just like looks like the happiest creature on It's Earth. actually pretty adorable. Yeah, it's like, oh, feed me. Yeah. I mean, it... And to use some, I've heard of like training dolphins. The United before. States has trained dolphins. Yeah, to find uh, sort of bombs or yeah, basically mines and naval ordnance. Yeah, they they actually they found something that they didn't know was they found a torpedo hmm. from like the late 1800s. Because they were like, well, we didn't put any test ordnance there, and the dolphins actually found this, and it's like this 15 foot long like brass tube. With like over a hundred kilos of, they called it gun cotton in it. It's like an ancient, or not ancient. It's a, it's a really old torpedo. It's really cool. Now I want to focus. So try to tie this together. I might fail miserably because I didn't think it through beforehand. But you know, I always harp on the importance of stories. The personal story you're telling yourself, the traditions and stories you inherit, uh, the political stories. I mean, the the culture at large is in many ways animated by their basic stories and the virtues and values those stories help instantiate in people. And people tend to embody them. I'm a big believer in life imitates art. You create sort of types and epic stories and myths and whatnot, and people will imitate those. I mean, if that's what you hear, think about it as a kid. Kids imitate their parents. They imitate the things their parents say. It's actually, a, there was a great moment in Avengers where the kid imitates what he says. Um, and so, I've been really stuck for a while and worried. Not, you know, where I can't sleep worried. But a brilliant scholar named Graham Allison was kind of telling a story of the West through his study of what he called the Thucydides trap. Thucydides is the old Greek historian who talked about the Peloponnesian War. That when a established power is met by a rising power, the story goes, even if both powers, both nations, don't want war and are actively not seeking war, they usually end up in war. And he studied 
several instances at different points in history showing this is mostly the rule with a few exceptions in recent history. And so there's been this worry, well, now the established power has been established for the last century. The United States is being met by a rising in global China, powerful China. I mean, a united China in many ways. But new scholars are kind of bringing something to bear. And what they suggested is maybe that Thucydides trap, the rising power and the established power will usually go to war. Maybe that's a Western bias. That historically speaking, that is true in the West. There tends to be uh, a sort of competition. It is like Game of Thrones. A competition for the ultimate power and upper hand. Whether that's militarily, economically, culturally, whatnot. And that tends to lead to conflict. If you look at the East, though, you look at Asia, there is obviously conflict. But if most of their history, especially in China, has been peaceful transition. Even when there have been... There have been major wars in Chinese history, no doubt. And in the 1900s, what do they, or the, excuse me, the 1800s, the Chinese call it the century of shame or something like that, where they were invaded by the Western colonialists in the way they were. The British really took not, it to them. Not to mention Japan. Right. Oh, and, and Imperial Japan. Was, Korea's before that. Right. So. But the idea is, though, because there is much more of a concern, though, in China domestically, that they understand we're such a large unit, and we're trying to control billions of people here, they're going to be focused mostly domestically. There might be a little bit of uh, tension in, say, the South China Sea and who controls it, but in general, let us not worry, um, and that let's not bring our Western stories to bear necessarily on the East just yet. That's something to think about, I suppose. They're just here to steal intellectual property? We'll just let that go? I mean, what are we going to do about it? I'm not in a position to do anything about it. Right, nor am I. Uh, And I think the United States will try to negotiate something about that. But intellectual property, now you're going to give me a whole tangent. That's an interesting idea. Regardless of your opinions on intellectual property. Yeah, they take intellectual property. I'm not denying that fact. Constant theft. But it's it's a unique kind of theft that's really easily done because it's really easy to copy an idea. And especially when you're living under another government, it's very easy to copy that idea and bring it to bear as a product or a service with impunity from the rival government. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, well, intellectual property is unique. Like most things, like you have a Mountain Dew capped, in case the owner's listening, in case the buttery one's listening. We don't have open drinks up here. No. No, but you've got a Mountain Dew bottle right there. If I take that Mountain Dew bottle, you don't have a Mountain Dew bottle anymore. No. But if you describe to me, you know, here's how we made it, like you still know how you made it, and now I know how you made it. Right. And I could go on making it, and you can go on making it. And it's a different... I understand the laws are there, that people go, I have a patent, I have a trademark, this is my right. But it's a unique kind of property in a way that it could be infinitely recreated. Now, some would say there's a diminishing return on the value. If you create more and more, I'm not going to reap as much profits. I get the arguments. But it's very difficult to stop when you have these major governments that can essentially protect any sort of prosecution. 
It's true. The hope is, is that China wants to continue to get richer. That's the hope of Saudi Arabia as well. That, yeah, they just, you know, crucified somebody in the streets. They're literally chopping the heads off of gay people. Still in Saudi Arabia. But the hope is, is that, well, let's keep giving them Western culture. Let's keep making them rich. And they'll come around eventually. That's the hope. That's, I don't know. That's the worst hope I have ever heard. Yeah. Do you know why? Because the mechanism of hope is not being permeated down. It's not being titrated down to the people because the, the mechanism of control right. is religion. Yeah. Oh, the Islamic. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's why. It's, how naive are we in the West that we think in the instance of the House of Saud that this is going to work? Well, the idea, I think, though, is you uh, all, you all, undermine that uh, religious theocracy kind of through the back door. And you also encourage people to speak out against it. You don't see it very often. All we've proven is that the House of Saud lo- loves the West. And conversely... Well, they like their protection. ...hates the West. Well, and yeah. They, they take what they want from the West, and the peoples of Saudi Arabia get very little in return mm-hmm. unless they're connected to the royal family or in some way have some form of money. Well, and here's how I view it, though. Because I've, I've really... I've wrestled with this. Like, if you believe in, like, ultimate liberty for every person on Earth, that these are the correct ideas, what it is, you know... It's a war for liberty with no end in sight. Permanent revolution till all the tyrants are killed and taken out and new wonderful governments are installed. Time heist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but that feels like a good way to create a lot of new tyrannies. Sure. And it, it's, we've, we've done that. Yeah, and something, and we have done that. The United States government has definitely done that. The rise of ISIS. Um, in many ways, you, yeah, you topple one and a new tyrant comes to bear. You chop off the head of the monster, it's a hydra. And a new head grows. <laughs> We're giving Marvel puns inside jokes here, folks. But I have been real big trying to give perspective on these two visions of human nature lately, and I got this from a guy named Thomas Sowell, but uh, Steven Pinker has also talked about it. Thomas Sowell put it as, uh, in these terms. He said there's the constrained and the unconstrained vision. The constrained vision, essentially human beings are usually very limited, ignorant. Like, even if they have the best intentions, they will fail and stumble. Uh, the un- And it's very tough to change them. You can slowly But it's very tough to change an individual, let alone an entire culture that has a history and momentum behind it. It seems like change does occur, at least timescale-wise, generationally. And then that's opposed to the unconstrained vision, which is very much like the French Revolution and Rousseau. Is that, oh, human nature, essentially man's a blank slate. And if you change the language and you change the culture and you change the politics, then you can change human nature. And you can do it quickly. You just have enough power and the right ideas. Pinker put it this way. It's the tragic view of life versus the utopian view. And I've come down on definitely the tragic view. That it's very tough to change people. It's possible, but it will not happen overnight by any means. I agree. So imagine the House of Saud is, you know, they're sitting pretty and they are tyrannical. 
in many ways. Same thing with the theocrats in Tehran and the Iranian government and their Revolutionary Guard. Russia is now with the strongman, the farce they call, they were calling it sovereign democracy for a while. But, I mean, we just went over this earlier today on these airwaves, like, the president in Russia can only serve two consecutive six-year terms. Mm -hmm. And so that happened. So in 2012, Medvedev stepped in. But there's that famous line where Barack Obama was caught on a hot mic with Medvedev at some summit. And Medvedev said one key thing, I will transmit your message to Vladimir. Wait, but you're the president. He's only the prime minister now. So it's... Putin is the, and this goes back to the, you get rid of Putin, what the hell happens in that country? There are people, I think, scarier than him or more insane. Uh, but he is the strong man holding all that crap together, holding all the oligarchs together and all this, you know, interest together. Rules with an iron fist. Same with President Xi in China, ruling with an iron fist. He took out a lot of his rivals as anti-corruption methods. So when you look at those folks, how do you change them? Well, we're not going to go to war with Russia. We're not going to go to war with China. I guess we could, but probably unwise if you you know value human life and you don't know how it would end necessarily. Probably not going to go to war with Saudi Arabia. I'm a little worried that we're on the warpath to with Iran. Very worried about that. Just. Uh, the Trump State Department under Pompeo has just declared the Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization, which gives them more sanctions teeth. Um, John Bolton has been pushing more and more. He's now in the news today. He was talking about the Monroe Doctrine is in full force. What? Yeah. He's talking about Venezuela and Russia and China's activity trying to prop up Maduro. Who speaks for John Bolton? John Bolton or his mustache? <laughs> well, it's, it's actually a dark mustache, but to look a little elder and wiser, he dyes it with the bones of his uh, vanquished enemies. See, for us common folk, just for men could do it. No, he, that's not enough for Bolton. No, not a touch of gray. But, yeah, that's, I mean, there's the potential for war out there. And when you do something like the Monroe Doctrine, the United States controls all the interests of the Western Hemisphere, what's to stop China and Russia, which I think they'll, they're making this argument, will stay out of the Eastern Hemisphere? No. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Well, Kim, Kim. I know you don't like me. I know you wanted me to pay millions of dollars for Otto, but you hurt Otto. I'm not paying you millions of dollars. And if you just look, look to look to the south, look south, you could have that too, Kim. You could have a McDonald's. I know you like to eat it, you fat little rocket man. But the my, my goodness, I would love to hear two political adversaries that hate each other and don't realize that the world is watching i would i would love to be a fly on a wall in a room of a heated exchange where these these two people doesn't matter who actually let's make it trump and hillary i would love to hear them just lash out at one another oh like not no no like like no we, censoring no self-censoring right it's like they're in a room alone yep just yelling at one another yep i'd love to see that too a couple's argument sorry <laughs> Well, that's a, what an ugly couple. Ugh, that'd be gross. But how do you solve this? Well, I think the best way to do it, 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 the threat of war is always there. And I've sort of 
stepped away from my libertarian ideals, where I think war, if by libertarian ideals, war is usually just mass murder in the name of God or nation or whatever. It's kind of like, yeah, we're against murder, but now we the rules are, you know, it's like the purge. You know, go ahead. Kill that other side. But given human history, given human nature, uh, I think that potential is always there. So the threat of war is, uh, I think, a necessary one to make everybody sort of behave. As long as you don't start calling war a virtue, like, you know, the Nazis and the, the German Kaiser did. That's that's when it's like, okay, we got to deal with these a-holes. Kind of like what ISIS is doing. They... They think violence is a virtue. Well, you made an interesting point that I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to touch back on is war and all of its violence. I'm inclined to believe that actually falls on the utopian side of human perspective rather than the tragic side to go into war. Yes. To commit the atrocities of war. Some war, and I think it's a mix. I think some wars can be utopian in nature, and it could be a domestic war. It's like the French Revolution, where they just start killing people left and right. Well, that's why the immediacy of death, Hmm. although given the sheer amount of numbers and the time over which it would occur, lends me into the the slowness of the tragic side. But on, on the utopian side, the immediate of death that happens yeah. in war. We're going to bring this about the change out yep. now by killing our enemies. A snap, if you right. Will. Well, I I think also the war can be from a tragic perspective. It's like, well, I guess we got to defend our land now. Uh, or, we got to fight this bad guy now. Or our brothers, right, and sisters, right. I mean, like if Canada got attacked, let's go USA. Right, right. I think war is actually on the fence. It depends on on the motivations. But how do you deal with this? There is a threat of war. There's diplomacy. There's sweetening the pot with economic entanglement and trade. When goods and services cross borders, armies tend not to. So is is Avengers a cultural victory? Yes, it is. Like civilization? Yes. I think the more you sneak into the minds of, say, young people in Saudi Arabia and Iran and China, something like that movie we watched last night, that's a huge victory. Yeah. I think it makes them go, wow, look at that accomplishment. That was amazing. Yeah. And there will be, you know it's working when the hardcore zealots, the people controlling those governments, are skeptical. Like, I don't know if we should be showing our people this stuff. I don't know well, about you saw that. It, you see it a lot in, in certain superhero movies that go over to China with how they approach the poster work. Right. They don't want to show too much imagery because Christianity is growing leaps. That's the fastest place it's growing in the world. China. It's unreal. And they're they're cracking down hard on it. But is, isn't their main religion no religion or is it? They're officially atheists, yes. Okay. Though, I mean, if you look at... Historically, it would be Buddhist, right? Uh, there's some Buddhist in that part of the world, but it's Confucianism. And if you look at Confucius... Um, he has some talk of like heaven, but they really just focus on the project on earth. And and before that, it was it was a sort of polytheism, right? Uh, like right. Uh, they had God, not Wu Tang, but uh, <laughs> Wu, uh, not Wu Kong. Maybe Wu, Wu something. It was a uh, like a monkey god. 
Oh, okay. And uh, they had tiger gods and you know, the, some, you're some the dragon. You know, polytheism that was... It's actually really fascinating. But Confucius is actually interesting. In the sense, if you read... I was just reading The World's Great Religions. It's a good book. And uh, Houston Smith, I think, is the author. And he kind of just lays out, here's what Judaism's all about, Christianity. I'm not... And he makes clear, I'm not, I don't have time in this one volume to go into every detail and denomination. But he lays out Confucianism. And... It makes a lot of sense. It's like, it really is. Here's how you serve yourself correctly. Here's how the structure of the family and the family, you know, you serve your role in your family. Here's how the family and you serve the role in society and and under the rulers. And here's how the rulers should treat. Everything's kind of interlocked. And I think that's pretty much what Chinese, the Chinese are doing right now along with this idea of communism, though they've kind of given it up, like economically speaking, I think President Xi and the people ruling China have under, they understand they've got a little bit of a problem because the more they try to crack down and control, the less economic growth they get and right. less dynamic their economy becomes. And they need to be able to shift from just producing a lot of crap and selling it to the world to selling things to themselves and having true entrepreneurship. So I... I think these ideas are always the best way to take on these tyrants and these things that look inevitable in a way. Right. It is a battle of ideas at the end of the day. It's a battle of storytelling. Yeah. I mean, you just it, somehow, and I don't know what does this, but it, it needs to be able to percolate. Mm-hmm. Like, say, 1984 or Animal Farm has done, even though it is a Western book, what it has done in the West. Well, and, I mean, what I would encourage people to do is if there are certain books the Chinese government doesn't like, or the Russian government doesn't like, smuggle it in there. The most insidious weapon that the West has against the Chinese is Christopher Robin, Joey. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> that's, that's great for folks who don't know. They banned the image of Winnie the Pooh because apparently people were mocking President Xi of China because he's getting a little pudgy in his you know middle age, mm-hmm. as most, most men do. And Just a smack of honey. <laughs> and so they banned it. He's like, how dare you call me Winnie the Pooh? I start sharing the hell out of Winnie the Pooh. Get around that firewall. we got to hit this break. We've already gone way too long in this opening segment. Joey, when we come back, can we talk about a complaint I have? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And also, cowbell. Before we get into all that, folks, Troy's complaint and more cowbell. I want to tell you the show is brought to you by Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. You're looking for... Uh, great guy to be your real estate agent. Been around the block a few times when it comes to real estate. He's managed real estate properties. He's invested, changed his own life, helped other people manage real estate, helped people buy and sell their homes, whether for the first time, second, or third time. He's starting up those pontoon boat lake property tours where you don't have to go through all the winding roads. You just go to one house, get on the pontoon boat, you see multiple lakeside properties in a day. Or if you're a first-time home buyer, he'll walk you through the process. Open your eyes to all the opportunities out there in the River Region. Or if you're looking to sell, he'll give you great suggestions. on These are the repairs and renovations you need to do before we ever put it on the market so that you don't get negotiated down. You get top dollar on the market. Here's how you do a successful open house. So people are really impressed with your house. Eddie Pedro does it all. Buys, sells, and helps you well, fulfill your American dream. So give them a call, 322-0662. Again, that number for Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group, 322-0662. We'll be right back with Troy's Complaint and more Cowbell. 
listen to that cowbell. Welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. T-Rex? No, this is Grand Funk Railroad. We're an American band. Gotcha. Ah. So before we get into the reason why I'm mentioning all the cowbell, such a sexy instrument. It's so good. It's a blunt object, but it's so good. Sometimes it's good to be blunt, strong, but firm. Uh, you have a complaint about the Avengers movie. It's my only complaint, Joey. At the end of Avengers Infinity War, I'm going to assume at this time that the majority of the listening audience has seen or heard about Infinity War. Mm -hmm. Not Endgame, Infinity War. At the end of that movie, everybody was very emotional. We we had time to compose ourselves. And we were able to compose ourselves with the mid-credits trailer. With hype for Captain Marvel. Right. There was no mid-credits trailer in Endgame. No post credits. We didn't. Trailer. We didn't stay. I'm realizing now that maybe we should have stayed because I didn't have time to compose myself, Joey. It was at the end of that movie last night. A packed theater. <laughs> it's not people doing cocaine. It's not like we're producing Howard the Duck here. It, no, people were like tearing up so much. It was a very emotional movie, like we said before. And yeah, people did need some time to compose themselves. But no, the reason I bring up cowbell. Is uh, some person who fancies them an opinion writer, fancies themselves an opinion writer. Right. Noah Smith for Bloomberg. Well, he shared an opinion. So maybe he's doing his job well because it caught on and it pissed some people off. He brought up the classic SNL skit where Will Ferrell, the untold behind the music, Blue Oyster Cult, Mm -hmm. and Don't Fear the Reaper. And how they had to have more cowbell. And Bruce Dickinson puts both his pant legs on like anybody else in the morning. He wanted more cowbell. He had a fever. The only prescription is more cowbell. Right. Noah Smith said the joke of that skit is that it there is no joke. And this one guy went on an epic explanation against Mr. Smith. Explaining, essentially, that uh, you don't know what you're talking about, sir. You don't know whatsoever. It's always open for interpretation, comedy is, obviously. But a guy named William Babani just really, you know, nobody likes to have to explain a joke. But he says, quote, The real joke here is that humor warrants sophisticated analysis. And yet many people are eager to write it off as ineffable nonsense. Or worse, as what Noah Smith called it, gaslighting, which makes no sense in this context. You're not making the audience doubt their sanity. You're making them laugh. There's a reason we laugh at Will Ferrell, especially if you know your classic rock. Laughter doesn't stem from nonsense. Laughter stems from discovery, the sudden realization of a truth or a lie, the things we take for granted getting explored in unexpected ways, the assumptions we make getting questioned and recontextualized. Humor is sanity, not insanity. I think the lesson we learned here today is that if you don't get a joke, it's okay to say you don't get it. The people who are laughing can probably explain it to you, and then you'll be able to understand similar jokes in the future and get them all on your own. So the idea was this, is that in classic rock, there was an era where the cowbell was prominent. 
And there was also an era, especially in the 90s, when that comedy sketch was made of VH1's Behind the Music. So let's take these two ideas. And yes, the joke is, how did the cowbell get into Don't Fear the Reaper? Or how did the cowbell get into, I don't know, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. Derringer's pretty much greatest hit. Or how did the cowbell get into Moby Dick? These are all great songs. I know. And this is the thing. That's why it's so funny. It's like they're amazing songs. The guitar parts are great. The the bass is fantastic. Some of the vocals and lyrical content is fantastic. But it's... You know, the one nerd, super nerd, who's like, VH1 behind the music, could you explain to me how the cowbell got in there? And to have Will Ferrell portray the cowbell, that's the joke. And that's what's funny. But essentially, in response to this, the uh, ultimateclassicrock.com put together the top ten cowbell songs. Number ten was Moby Dick by Zeppelin. And it's more prominent in the drum solo part, obviously. There's that kind of rock and open. And then, you know... Bottom does like a 15-minute, 20-minute drum solo, depending on which live performance you listen to. Number nine was Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, Derringer. Number eight was Born on the Bayou, right. CCR. Don't like them. You don't like CCR? What's only, wrong with you? Only heard it through the grapevine. <laughs> oh, you like Fogarty's Heard It Through the Grapevine. Fogarty is where listening to new music... If, if you listen to a lot of John Fogarty, you won't be discovering new music anytime soon. That's just my opinion. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, heard it, heard it Through the Grapevine is amazing, and CCR is amazing. I just, I'm over it. Okay, it, it's kind of like you and Tom Petty. Yep. You're just over it. Yep. Well, and then this song was on there at number seven. Fool for the City, Fog Hat. I love Fog Hat. Yeah, number six was Stone Free. Hendrix, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. That's a great song. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest drummers in classic rock. By a you know, low rider, obviously. Yeah. Or let's see, Hair of the Dog, Nazareth. Wow. Like these don't. I you know. I know. I sound like an aging hipster. They just music isn't like this anymore. Greta Van Fleet tried. It's true. But it's just not. Not even close. The closest thing we have to a rock star these days, guitar god, so to speak. And I'm not talking about the virtuosos who are still doing their thing like Satriani, whatever. I mean, Jack White. Like, his music is... He can do other styles, but his music is definitely guitar-based. Yeah. And he's a, a true guitarist. But number three is the song that inspired the skit, Don't Fear the Reaper. Classic rock staple, but then when they did that skit, it's become part of pop culture lore. So, you know, I like my cowbell, folks. We're an American band came in at number two, the song we came into. And then number one, Honky Tonk Woman, Rolling Stones. Wow. It's a good list. It's a good list. It reminds you of the power of the cowbell. What's your favorite Blue Oyster Cult song? Don't Fear the Reaper, probably. Uh, mine's Marshall Plan. Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a great way. It tells a story. I like songs that tell stories. No, I, you know, I don't mind that. It's not necessary. It could just be an emotive like right. song, whatever. Yeah, it could be no lyrics at all, like Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Like Bonham beats that whale into submission. Yeah, like wow. 
and I love the guitar. Yeah, it's so good. It's just, it's tasty. It's kind of nasty too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good, good crap. I almost said the other word. <laughs> good stuff there, really good stuff. So it's just funny to me though that like. What the internet allows is one dude at Bloomberg's like, oh, they're just gaslighting you with ridiculous things. And it's like, no, man. It's like, I've always, you, you've always heard it, but you never thought about it. So who would do an in-depth piece on, like, more cowbell? That's the joke. Yeah. And the fact that the Will Ferrell's character is so devoted to playing the cowbell in such a ridiculous way. And it, it not only did it go over this guy's head, but it's been... Yeah, why 20, is he bring, 20, 25 years? Yeah. Why is he bringing it up now? Like, what? <laughs> I've seen the skit multiple times. I used to think it was hilarious. I personally, I don't find a lot of humor in it now, but there are other SNL skits that I never found funny that I now find funny. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I look back and, like, some of the Weekend Update guys were just fantastic. Like, I just listened to an interview with Dennis Miller. I, I would have broke so much if I had to do that. Oh, yeah. And Miller was so good. He's He said, okay, here's your news, topical news item, esoteric reference. This news item is like this esoteric reference. Who the hell am I? That was his joke structure because he had to perform every week. But Miller said that he saw Seinfeld when Jerry Seinfeld was just starting. And comedy is very tough. I mean, to be even good at it, you just got to work at it for years and years, and there's no necessarily you know destiny that you will be good at it it's a craft but seinfeld he said was one of the earliest like just the guy got it from his observations stuff that dennis miller said i never would have thought of that it's like you know i'll accept that you know birds aren't as intelligent canaries for instance aren't as intelligent as human beings but when i saw a canary fly into a mirror the other day i think at least to be intelligent enough to you know get out of the way of the other canary <laughs> It's just like some people's brains. I think that's why work differently. Seinfeld, the TV show, was so successful because it took his brand of humor and put it in an episodic format. The same thing, curb your enthusiasm, was just yeah. a raunchy Seinfeld, essentially. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, Michael J. Fox, can I have uh, can I have a soda? <laughs> We're done. <laughs> I'm still trying to recover from last night. What I, a movie. I want to see it again. Yeah, likewise. And again, and again, and again. Well, there's always, you know, this weekend. Mm -hmm. We're going to see Detective Pikachu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we're full grown.